Today, we're sitting down with a real biologist to learn about the origins of life. You guys know the longest word in English? It's pneumono ultra microscopic silicol volcano coniosis. Okay, yeah, that helped me understand this way more honestly. You know what the word is, but you can't spell it? Come on, man. And then I left it on and it melted. Oh my god. Do you like percolating? That's the first question. One big problem in the origin of life is that we still don't even know what life is. Well, so where did life come from? Um, nobody knows. Life as a phenomena is not really well explained in physics. And I, I think it's a piece that physics actually needs. Physicists aren't really acknowledging it, but there's important implications, I believe, to the origin of life and to you know, like the origin of consciousness that, um, that have a lot to do with like information or information theory and you know, entropy. And these are big open questions in physics too, but they're not using living organisms or studying life to try to understand them. And I think that's kind of a, a misstep because life interacts with, you know, has so much interaction with information, with entropy. So I, I, I think that there's a deeper mystery to be solved. Mm. It's funny because everybody thinks that they have the, uh, you know, something to say about it. And, um, you know, when you look at the, the sum total, it seems like there's a picture, but it's still very ambiguous and it's not really clear what's going on. Do you feel like contributions from all levels, though, are part of the whole story? Like if you want to say where did life come from, you have to talk to. I think so. And I think it's important to do that um, because uh, if you look at like, I mean, there have been tremendous insights from like, say, cosmology about um, the origin of life. In particular, a lot of these molecules that we'll talk about and however they emerge, um, some of them have been known to actually fall out of space. And you can tell because they're uh, space isotopes. That is cool. Yeah. So it's it's interesting. There's a lot of yeah. different things that could happen. And then when um, you say fall out of space, you mean like how we're stars, like it, we're all forged in the center of a, a sun, right? Like all, uh, everything that's not helium and so hydrogen. A sun is going to be too hot for, you know, those complex organic molecules to uh -huh. form. They would likely emerge. Oh, with the like organic. A, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I was thinking of like the, they would the likely, things on the periodic table, but you're talking about stuff that's organic. Yeah. Like organic molecules. Okay. Uh, so yeah, the, all the, everything on the periodic table comes from stars or exploding stars. Um, Anything else is going to, like those complex molecules, they, they need to be in a much cooler environment. So um, that tends to happen in some kind of a, a solar system or like a, a gaseous you know, space that mm. isn't quite hot enough to be a star. And so I am, like the more I learn about this, the more I'm tending to think that like organic biological life will look very similar in lots of places. I didn't used to mm. have that view, like, cause it would, it seems that like, uh, you know, there's lots of different kinds of biological molecules you can make. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, carbon could do so many interesting things, right? but when you look at the kinds of molecules that occur naturally and the kinds of things that seem to emerge naturally, they're, they're very consistent with what we're made out of. Mm -hmm. So I tend to think that if life does evolve, you know, independently and it, if, you know, if, for example, there's life in multiple galaxies, you uh -huh. know, it had to evolve independently because oh, there's really? no known phenomena that we know of that would, you know, connect our galaxy to another galaxy. Right. Because yeah. there's, there's asteroids or something, right? Don't they just too far even that. Hmm. Okay. Do you think that, the way that life evolved here would happen the same way, just in a different setting almost, but like the same process. Wherever it happened, uh, yeah, I mean, it could have happened multiple times and it would be apparently similar, but um, I believe. But um, 
Yeah, it's like how sim- like are you talking about similar like in the sense that like the on the would, cellular level or like you know how DNA, we're- it would have RNA and it would have proteins. Okay. So I, I believe that any organic biological life would exhibit would. Do have you think those everything would things. look like a tube? Um, like you know how you know how everything alive right now kind of like in the mouth out the butt. Um. So. I, yeah, that, I mean, actually, but you know what I mean, like the I digestive mean, tract. But but yeah. like you know, it, like a lion, a tiger, is, a is monkey, whatever you're talking about, it all kind of goes in and, and nutrients are absorbed and then comes out. Like everything's a tube. Yeah, right? I mean, it's efficient like a uh, body plan for uh, you know organisms that need to consume another you know a dead organism or a still living one to survive. Right. Yeah. Um, if you're large enough, you, you know, you've got all these cells you need to take care of. You have to go through a lot of trouble making sure that you have energy available for all of those cells. So, I mean, yeah, being a tube is kind of a, an efficient delivery system in its own. So, your guess is way. life everywhere in the we universe would, see, would probably be too, too Blake. You wouldn't see that all life exists as tubes because you know not all life on Earth exists as tubes. Yep. Like I don't plants. think of most plants as being tube-like. Nope. Um, and oh. then you know. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Sponges, there's a lot of plants too. Things like that. that. Um, there's. Yep. There's is everything uh, that moves is uh, even everything that moves is in a tube, is it? Yeah, so like lots uh, of tubes, but not everything. Yeah, unicellular organisms, not very tube-like. Or fungi. Um, yeah. Okay, we have enough examples, man. <laughs> to prove me wrong, You're but good. I, I do believe that the tube would would come up somewhere else. So, what about the theory where life started at the bottom of the ocean from the heat, the chemosynthesis? Yeah, do you think that one's more likely? So maybe it wasn't actually the sun's energy. So definitely, um, I tend to really like the uh, the hydrothermal vent theory. What's that? Th- yeah, can you look that? Up? There's something on YouTube. Can you look at a hydrothermal vent on YouTube just so we can see what they look like? Yeah, I, I like this one because um, you see this. It's it's an interesting example where you get like you know very volatile chemicals coming up out of the earth's soil and then it mixes with water the other the other theory is like uh condensation pools so if Mm. uh you would you would get concentrated substances in like a condensation pool um these hydrothermal vents are popular because um you have these volatile organic compounds that come out of like thermal vents and then you know it can react with water so a lot of inorganic material is flying out of these there's a lot of heat a lot of energy so this is a theory that means that maybe this is where the right soup is stirring around at high enough temperatures to potentially create one of those like one in a a trillion connections and make and make the thing that needs to replicate life yeah additionally there's a lot of energy there too you know the hot water the cold water and then you know the uh the gradient between the the two the chemical Mm. gradient that's a that's a tiny volcano right like this is hot magma and lava underneath the seafloor heating up it, yeah it's all the gas from the center of the earth coming out all that byproduct from the lava and stuff see what comes out of a hydrothermal vent particle laden fluids <laughs> a venting black smoker mints jets can you look up the anatomy of a thermal vent or how thermal vents are formed and then look up hydrothermal memes <laughs> Buddy, <laughs> <laughs> there's got to be a lot out there's, there. There's there's gonna be none. Oh, bro, of course. Everybody jokes about hydrothermal vents. So hydrothermal vents <laughs> are a result of seawater percolating down through fissures in the ocean crust in the vicinity of spreading centers of the subduction zones. Dude, I love a bunch of those words. Percolating fissures. Do you like percolating? <laughs> Um, I used to have a percolator that would make my coffee every morning. Nice. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, it's a great word, man. And then I left it on and it melted. The handle melted off. Oh my God. Really? Yeah, because I used to have a fissure that made my coffee. It was the best, man. (laughs) 
rich people. Thanks. <laughs> Appreciate you laughing at that one. Okay, so we're going to look at this experiment. It's called the Miller-Urey experiment. A lot of people reference this when it comes to life. What What is happening? Why is this experiment important? Okay. What does it tell us? So this is a great experiment because it's the first one that demonstrated that there is a naturalistic process for the early for biological molecules to come into existence. Um, in particular, this was an experiment that showed that you could use ordinary inert gases to make uh, uh, amino acids and then later mm. protein chains um, or amino acid chains that could fold into proteins. So you could see like the uh, the big glass chamber on top. It has the two metal rods going in and then there's there's actually an electrical arc that connects them. Um, that is the energy source needed to convert the gas in the chamber. Um, so in this experiment, he's using N2 and CO2, mm -hmm. whereas the original Miller-Urey experiment, I believe, used ammonia and methane. Now, uh, it, it's cool that this experiment still works because the, uh, the N2 and the CO2 are more consistent with what the early Earth's atmosphere would have been like. Um, however, it, it, it doesn't really matter in my opinion because the, it, what it shows conclusively is that there's a plausible like path for these organic compounds to come from. And this was the first person to show it. So, wow. or, so all well, Miller, in, so Stanley all, Miller and his So we start boss. with all inorganic material, stuff that you would not consider alive, and you end up with the building blocks of life. Mm -hmm. And the only ingredients he needs are um, there's water, there's nitrogen gas, and there's CO2. Um, transfer this into the test tube. Say explode. Oh no. We're going to add uh, 12 drops of ninhydrin. What is this a CBD? Oh, this is awesome. So that, so that is the building blocks. The proteins are in there? Or well, so he's adding a reactant to indicate that they're there. Yeah. Okay. So it's in, it's there. But, well, we know, yet, it's, we know it's going to react. So what he does next is I believe he has to heat it. But the heating, when it actually formed the amino acid, they, they should be in there already, you think? The heating has to do with uh, proving that they're in there. Yeah. That's uh, just making the reactant dye them correctly. It's uh, looking pretty good so far. Oh my God, the liquid's turning black. And what does that mean, Matt? I, I don't know, man. It means life finds a way. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> we just created the building blocks of life from inorganic material. That's so. crazy. And uh, there you can see the nice dark purple color. The nice dark purple color. Um, that is uh, indicative of the uh, presence of amino acids. You debunk the debunkers. Debunkception. Isn't it about, isn't life 4.2 billion Five. years old or something? So the Earth is four and a half billion years old. Life shows up relatively quickly, right? Like only um, a billion years after it formed or something? Fossil record, or like when did life start? Throw three by seven. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Almost Anyways. as soon as the Earth was cool yeah, enough. Yeah, surprisingly. So it's, it almost makes you, but the reason I think that's interesting is because it makes you wonder, like as soon as... But everything shows up and it's right does it it does it happen well like, let's think it, about significant figures here because we're, we're quoting a number like 4.5 billion years and 0.5 billion years is 500 million years so like you know one million years is you know <laughs> doesn't show up in that figure and, and that's a lot of time for life to evolve or yeah for things to happen like we have amino acids and how is that correlated with living breathing mammals and dinosaurs and so fish am amino acids are the uh they form the the monomer units that you can chain together to make a polymer peptide which you know when you've got a polymer peptide that's even longer 
um, if it's dissolved in water, it folds into a three-dimensional shape. And we call these proteins. We get to use, they're important because of their uh, catalytic and mechanical abilities. Dude, microbial minute, let's sign up. Today we'll be highlighting a paper from science that provides a recipe to synthesize some of the basic building blocks of life. Now, one hypothesis for abiogenesis, or the formation of biological life from non-biological precursor molecules, is the RNA world hypothesis. This posits that RNA molecules were the first biological molecules that formed in that primordial soup. The wet-dry cycling around these shallow ponds may have provided the necessary conditions for specific chemical reactions. Previous chemical studies from this same um, lab, in fact, have generated the purines, the adenine and guanine, uh, from early Earth conditions. By evaporating, the evaporation pools would make a denser pool of, uh, you know, Oh, brings it just brings it closer together. Okay, gotcha. Actions also assume a fluctuation between both acidic and basic conditions, which the authors suggest could have come from acidic rain, um, acid rain, uh, and carbonates, respectively. I see. The wet-dry cycling may have occurred due to the seasonality that was uh, present even in early-day Earth. This model assumes that these reactions did take place on Earth's surface, which is in contrast to other models that have posited an aqueous beginning to life. So she mentioned the four different nucleobases that you could get. Um, you, they come in two different families. You have the pyrimidines and the purines. Nucleobases um, means what? Like a group of... So We don't have nucleotides yet. As far as I can tell, we only have protein or we only have amino acids so we have the nucleo so the we had the amino acids from the miller-urey experiment um what we worked at, made here were the uh nucleobases now dna and rna have uh, three components for each molecule in the chain you have mm -hmm. the phosphate group you have the ribose sugar and then you have the nucleobase mm -hmm. um the ribose sugar and the phosphate group form the backbone so-called whereas the um the nucleobase forms the pair bonding piece that you know complements another strand or for that matter in the case of rna it's it's the one that does the uh it, it right and our yuri miller planet doesn't have that yet on it no it wouldn't be there so but it would have the phosphate and the wait what's the, what makes the backbone out of those three things two things already the exist, phosphate right? and the the ribose form the backbone does the ribose exist yet? ribose is a sugar and that's they they talk oh, about this wait, at the end of sugar the, oh does sugar exist without life? They talk about this at the end of this video. Is uh, That's their next, this, this researcher's right next step is to try and oh, find the origin gotcha. of ribose. So we have to figure out where sugar yeah. came from. So, um, yeah, so this is what she was talking about. She called it the Krebs cycle. Um, but this is a citric acid cycle, and it's really important for uh, making ATP and well, basically breaking down sugar into uh, a more manageable molecules that uh, that your body can use. Because sugar would, if you tried to burn sugar as an energy source, it's mm -hmm. actually way too strong. It's all locked up. Yeah, and it would it would cause a lot of problems for cells. So instead, you have a very careful process that's used to break it down. Now, there's some researchers, uh, Dr. Schiller, who you've, you've met, um, he, he's argued this one to me, is that um, the citric acid cycle is such a, a fundamental, it, it occurs using such fundamentally small pieces that and it's just so, I, I don't really know the, the entire chemi chemistry argument behind it, but uh -huh. there are some chemists who believe that the citric acid cycle in particular is a common feature of any organic life 
Um, it would have to emerge Whoa. independently for any such organism. So oh. fun stuff. So, but going back to the, yeah, go ahead. To get this right, this is basically the key to unlock energy to actually be used. This is definitely a important part to the origin of life. Okay. This is a, an interesting experiment. A guy uh, was looking at uh, the role that boron might play in the mm -hmm. the silica of the glass in catalyzing these and you know these reactions. Mm -hmm. um, you know that wasn't originally considered, and up until this guy came along, it, that meant that wasn't considered. Yeah. Um, it, it should be terribly surprising because uh, the the glass that you see in this. I mean, if you look at like the clays that life would have. Bit, or these early molecules would have been exposed to. Yeah. You look at clay under a microscope, mm -hmm. it actually has a very crystalline shape. And as such, it's, Whoa. you know, um, clay being silica is also gonna have other mineral impurities, boron, plausibly one of them. Um, in the mm. earlier video we were watching, you know, she talked about uh, zinc. But uh, there's, I mean, there's many kinds of, you know, metallic catalysts that could be, you know, in, you know, soil or such. Yeah, so that's why maybe on the surface, so the surface of Earth is starting to sound a little bit more yeah. ripe than I was thinking. But there's also mm -hmm. soil and hydrothermal vents. Look at this, uh, look at all of those amino, or all of those molecules that he was able to pull out of this. These are all organic molecules that he was able to verify or in, you know, that were produced by his replication oh. of the Miller-Urey experiment. Um, many amino acids, and get this, several pieces of the Krebs cycle or the citric acid cycle oh, also Oh, all so, coming, dude, that's a down. huge key then, right? So scroll down, let me see that list. So um, looking at the amino acids, we see glycine, alanine, valine, leucine, Whoa. proline, serine, asparagine, Matt, you know what aspartic this means? acid, means glutamic so acid, things. lysine, histidine. Um, we also have adenine, guanine, uracil, cytosine. Um, these are, uh, they're, they're things you hear all the time. These are in regards to these our, are our life sub molecules of DNA and RNAs. Right. And then also there's a bunch in here about that are related to the Krebs cycle. Mm -hmm. You have lactic acid, fumaric acid, malic acid, oxaloacetic acid, uh, alpha ketoglutaric acid, and maybe another one in there somewhere. Uh, succinic acid down at the bottom, uh, pyrene. Yeah, let's go back to the citric acid cycle. So this was a picture. big aha moment for you. When yeah, you and read so, this. Yeah, and there's, see, see me these alpha ketoglutaric acid, succinyl acid, so succinate, humorate, malate. Very good. This is really oxaloacetate. Cool. I see why this is important. I mean, that's really a lot of things coming from a place that can be tracked all the way back to inorganic material and things Crazy. that are very uncommon. But it's not just as simple as the 20 things that the original Yuri Miller experiment kind of produced. It's so much more. You know what? So helps. The original Miller-Yuri experiment, as it was reported, uh, reported only like seven amino acids were synthesized. Um, it turns out that was just a feature of his, of their poor, their, their low effort in detecting all the different amino acids that were probably there. Um, they had followed up actually using like, you know, leftover bottles after Stanley Miller died. Um, they reanalyzed them and found 17 amino acids and then chains of amino acids. So it wasn't, it wasn't just the seven. There was, was a lot more that came out of that. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that was Whoa. like, wasn't that like 50 years ago or something like, or more. Yeah. So, 
how come like every grad student's not doing Yuri Miller? Like, how come we haven't built hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of replications of this? Or have yeah. we? Like, it, I'm just surprised like not everybody's like knows so, this and redone this. So it, that did happen. And what what ins, what happened was like I, I think after the Miller Yuri experiment came out, you know, some scientists thought, you know, hey, what what can we do with these you know these molecules once we have them? You know, maybe if we put it in an oven and bake it for a bit, it'll do something yeah, interesting. Yeah, just playing with all the variables of what what's in there and what mm -hmm. can happen next. And it would it's been a slow process in making like these small in, you know molecules. Um, and it's you know because you know life is made of very big molecules. Uh, you know we're made of you know proteins that could be anywhere from you know just a few amino acids long to uh, tens of thousands. Um, I mean I think there's one that has like ten thousand residues in it called Titan. <laughs> it's a Dang. huge yeah. It's a muscle protein in people. right. And this is where when oh, you wow. start thinking about the probabilities of that all coming together, you need to think about something that could maybe kind of help guide that process boom that's it that thing like that's yeah to oh, me sorry. it's just like a cool colored thing but to you is that just like a gigantic um i mean like are you like that's like the giganotosaurus of dna yeah, <laughs> uh it's a bit of trivia i know it's the biggest protein i know of that's a lot yeah pretty big you guys know the longest word in english no what is it it's pneumono ultramicroscopic silicone volcano coniosis Oh, good, good for it? you, man. You know it's that? It's a diamond disease. Oh. It's a what? It's a disease you can get if you work in a diamond mine. No. Oh. A diamond mine, then you, I don't know. Hey, okay. you, you can check that out for us, Matt, while he's talking. Oh, how do you spell it? Oh. <laughs> you know what the word is, but you can't spell it? Come on, man. Uh, like P-N-E-U uh, something. Pneumonoultramicroscopic silicone volcano coniosis. A lung yeah. disease. Imagine you have a bunch of Legos on the ground, and... I want to form a boat, but I want the boat to actually float in the water to go somewhere. Like, how did we go from like a bunch of stuff into things that want things that interact with each other, that don't want to get dead and want to get energy and move around? So it sounds like you're really asking about like emergence and how do we go from, you know, these simple molecules to like, you know, these um, the emergent properties of, you know, uh, yeah. replicators of yeah, you know, like, with meaningful my things. Yeah, just but just put it in my brain. The Legos, you could stack them forever and they could become boxes and random looking things. But like, when do they, they become a boat. a boat? Like, when do they become? Uh, yeah, like a, an airplane, a, a city. Like, when do they become a thing? that exists in the world that wants something that does something that has something a, that some, has it's purpose. guided in some way, some kind of purpose. Mm. So, I mean, a lot of those concepts that you brought up like boats and cities, I mean, those are not easily explained with, you know, the origin of life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, no. Um, so, okay. There's some interesting stuff about like self assembly and self, uh, uh, uh the, these emergent properties is that, mm -hmm. um, self assembly can occur if you settle on a few simple rules, and uh, just let them play out. And there's lots of different simple things that you can let play out in this way. Um, Conway's Game of Life is one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. It's very, very famous. You basically start with a cell and there's a simple rule. Like the cell is either gonna live or die. It lives or dies based on how many cells are around it. If I recall correctly, it's um, if there's no cells around it, it dies because mm -hmm. it's starving. If it's surrounded by cells, like five or six then it, it'll die right well because it's suffocating yeah, I forgot the pattern too but but if it's we're two, essentially thinking about a grid like a like a checkers board yeah and if it's two it'll increase to three and then uh yeah it's 
it's like that. But okay. anyway, but even if we don't get those specific roles, the the concept is that imagine a checkerboard, and you might have like a a red checker, and then depending on what it's surrounded by, and it can be something very simple, you can end up with extremely elegant emergent, yeah, emergent patterns. patterns. Yeah. If you just follow that same simple rule, whatever it is, and let's say I don't think this is it, but let's say if the checker has an empty square to the left and, and a filled square to the right. And it could be just that simple and then multiply it, multiply it, multiply it, multiply it. Mm-hmm. And these are some examples of the kind of designs you get from incredibly simple rules. Yeah. And you, so some of these you have names like uh, the glider, you, the little tiny ones that it's like, I think it's only like five pieces and it kind of dances and kind of moves across the screen. It glides. It looks like a glider. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's, it, it only takes these few simple rules and then, you know, from this, you know, you, you get these kind of almost lifelike r- patterns that emerge. Um, what's really cool oh about... Gosh, look at that one. What I think is really cool about Conway's Game of Life is you could... It's, it's complex enough of a system that you can use it to program a computer, to emulate a computer. So it's Turing complete. What? Yeah. Um, that is, you could use you use a computer. I did not know that. It's Turing Conway's to emulate Conway's Game of Life, but you're going to use such a big Conway's Game of Life that it's it can actually emulate its own. It's going to be a computer itself. It's doing computations. Yeah. Okay, I guess That's so. I mean, because because computers are made of really simple logic gates. So if you just hand something like an AND, an OR, an XOR. Mm-hmm you can program something complicated. So I guess simple rules. Yeah, why not? That's crazy. That's crazy. I hadn't really thought about logic gates and computers in terms of Conway's Game of Life. That is, is really cool. This is Conway's Game of Life still? Yeah. Do you, you should... So when, when we're talking about simple... Do you, when you think about simple rules emerging, is that... Can you throw information into that? Like, how do you see information? Where does information start? to play a role because it doesn't feel like the Miller-Urey experiment is information. Like there's not patterns there that are anything. Like we're not talking about RNA or DNA that hold any serious information generation oh. to generation. Mm. So um, the Miller-Urey experiment does, I mean, there is information in that because you have molecules that are more complicated than the ones before. Mm-hmm. And it's it's significant. I mean, there was you saw the experiment where the guy adds, you know, he has the indicator and then he sits it in the hot water and then it turns purple. Right. There, that was, that was information. The change in color of purple indicated that there were different molecules in it than there were before. So wow. there's this information. Is what, such if you're a, just, what about the iron and stuff that was sitting on earth before life? Oh, you, could have met, you could have catalyzed that with something and it wouldn't be information, would it? Well, I mean, why wouldn't? So information is, uh, because it would have been, ran- it would have been pure randomness. Why, no, no, why it would have been why because some some heavier elements are less common than others. Is that information? I mean, yeah, you just gave me information the, about elements. But the periodic, <laughs> the periodic table. You just wait. So information did exist. Okay. So I, information I, obviously has existed long before life. Okay, dumb question. So information okay. is a is a complicated subject. Um, there's apparently a relationship between entropy and information, such that entropy is information that you can get like these miller like going back to the miller experiment mm-hmm. you get these amino acids and if you run the miller experiment these amino acids will sometimes actually chain together um there's information in that that chain reveals the like the order of operations of how that 
molecule must have come into existence. If not the explicit order oh. of operations, there is, it tells Something you. Something that is more than random. Yes, it's even if more it is specific than random. Even if it is random, though, it even if it's random in that like it could have been many other ways. Yeah, there is the way that it is, and that is the information. Okay, it, and just to put this in context, so and, and, and how familiar are you with entropy? Because it's a measure of disorder. So in general, a deck of cards that's in perfect order, if you shuffle it, it's going to get randomized over yeah. time. So when you have the Miller-Urey experiment, you're actually taking what is all these random molecules and they're starting to chain up, which is essentially like shuffling a deck of cards in such a specific way that it's starting to line up. So you're okay. now fighting entropy. You're now getting more organized. And humans, life, everything um, here is... We're, we're surprisingly going the opposite direction. We're taking energy and organizing it into, into our DNA and our... But there's a paradox there in that that energy or that entropy actually comes... Or that in information comes from entropy. Like, it's... It, it's... That's bizarre. Yeah. It's information the, like, the almost... information that can't happen almost or the, the options that don't result in, like... Well, the information goes away when you shake something up and all the order is lost. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, a, like a, a box with like a Lego boat in it could be organized to do something. And if you shake it up and all the Legos fall apart, so um, you, the, ent the information I, I, has been lost. It's moving towards disorder. So right? eh, I, I, I disagree. I, I don't think that's how it works. Um, okay. There's in a random thing, in something that's random, you would actually say there's more information in it because it, you have to record more to reproduce it so if i give you a very orderly um you know a uh, you know stack of legos for example you know for you to reproduce it it's very easy right but if i give you a pile oh, of legos right 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 randomly thrown across because the floor, if it's yeah a random stack of legos takes a ton of time to describe whereas if it, if it was like every third one was blue you could have a simple rule exactly. so that actually has and it's paradoxical. That has less information in it, even though, because it's got a pattern. Yeah, and it's paradoxical because the random arrangement is, you know, one of many random arrangements. And we think of that random arrangement as all being like, okay, well, I I'm going to dump these Legos on the floor. It's going to be just like, you know, Dylan's mess of Legos on the floor. Yeah. Yep. And, um, but it isn't. It's different. Hmm. And it's, it's hard to describe something because it's so unorderly. There's another one that I love. This one is actually a little more physical. There's these, there are these things that they call Janus particles. So basically, um, Janus, if you've ever heard of, no, I've never heard of it. Uh, Janus uh, is a uh, hold on, a god with two heads, like a Greek god with two heads. Oh. And basically, with these Janus particles, what you're going to do is you're going to have like a. Uh, there's usually a positive charge on one side and a mm -hmm. negative charge on the other. Alternatively, what you could do is uh, you could have like a one side that I guess is aluminum, so it doesn't react with anything, but the other side is going to be uh, uh, platinum. So it'll be it'll actually catalyze certain reactions, and then they'll take these little platinum beads or these half platinum beads and drop them in like a hydrogen peroxide solution. The platinum will catalyze oh, hydrogen peroxide. Do they form interesting shapes into water and? Uh, oxygen and that the oxygen beads that form off will or the oxygen that you know now is a gas starts to form on it will push against the bead and it kind of drives it around um oh. the other approach is to use uh, oh more like conway so, so it's more like conway's game of life you'll see 
motion or like maybe those hit like the little airplane or something will emerge crazy. not quite that cool but yeah actually uh let's and so the the aluminum is like the direction that it's going that's like yeah the aluminum would essentially point in the direction that's going to go so when we were talking about a few r rules in the game of life because these things kind of have okay. a polar side and a, a an, an inert side they'll they kind of make rules and when you jostle them together they become they do something more orderly. than because the some of their parts kind of they yeah well since they're all following the same rules they 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 may form something orderly together yeah oh cool so that's yeah so complex can emerge from simple yeah in mass um so there was yeah let's let's see the video that uh i found of the uh flagellar dynamics this one doesn't use uh the this one uses uh the charged flagella or sorry this charged uh, start Janus particles. Oh yeah, you can kind of even see the Janus particles, little yin yang guys running around. Whoa. Yeah, and what they're doing is they're using a magnetic field mm -hmm. to uh, induce these. Uh, oh, this, flagella! These... This is what's in our cells that move. Oh, because oh, I forgot from biology. That's what the, our cells have the little flagella. That's how they swim around. Mm -hmm. Oh, and they can come, and those things can come from something that simple. Um, so the so now we have a motion. So now we have an inorganic material that turned organic that clustered into something, and now it can move. So these, I mean, yeah. It, oh, it we made life, on, yeah, right? No, no, not quite. Come on, <laughs> we're gonna be close. That thing looks like it moves around. I mean, it moves around and it's cool, but we're that just talking about like uh, okay, okay, okay. You know, self-organizing an emergent behavior. It looks like a little snake, man. Beware! Here comes your Janus snake. But there are similarities. Look at that. That's the cool stuff. Oh. And they're all following like a magnetic field. Will they eventually just oh. become one long snake or do they have a tendency to not? They have different patterns. Well, That's yeah, the but they're not all really made sure. of the same thing. Won't they eventually just all connect? Well, they look like they're kind of, I mean, so they, some of them connect and then they disconnect. Oh, and sometimes, and then, they, yeah, okay, yeah. so given enough. Uh, They'll even like hand somebody off and be like, hey, <laughs> yeah. why don't okay. you take this guy now? Yeah, okay. So then you get a lot of different, I mean, it kind of, it looks like a little bit of Conway's Game of Life. Yeah, it looks so, like something something complicated could emerge from given enough time for sure. Yeah, so a physicist loved to play with these. Yeah, they do some really good visuals here. Oh, it's a pattern right there, yeah. So so that video is just explaining how it the 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 cells interact with each other based on um the m properties of what they are. So, so it's not necessarily about the cells. I would. They kind of look like cells, just because they're. We're round, not. But, I mean, cells, no, yeah, not yeah. not cells. I mean, uh, like the molecules, they're how called, they interact with each other. What are they to, called Janus molecules. Yeah, yeah, they're Janus particles, and yeah. So it's it's an analogy for how uh, you know the simple rules, whatever, even very simple rules. You got a positive charge or a negative charge. Um, you know, as long as all of these little entities are following the same rules, um, they may do something very complicated. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, especially so just if the advancement if of following the rules. same rules, maybe working together, so to speak, uh, something more complicated can emerge. Yeah. Okay. That. I'm connecting the dots. <laughs> um, let's look at the uh, self-replicating ligase ribozyme. Okay, cool. So actually, this is just a, a link to the an actual picture. So we talked about this in one of the reaction videos a little bit, right? Yeah, um, but they might not have watched that in okay, the podcast. Cool. Okay, so assume they haven't. Okay, so this is a, an example of a uh, RNA ligase re um, 
replicating enzyme uh, or ribozyme as it's called and basically yeah. what it is this is a two-dimensional description of the folded structure um you have like if you zoom in uh right there oh yeah yeah um see the ppgoh okay so that oh belongs to one of the ribose groups and it is part of the mechanism that this uh ribozyme will use to catalyze other uh residues to replicate itself. What's residue mean? I don't understand. Oh, uh, so residue would be like uh, each element in the chain. So each uh, each nucleotide in the chain. So that's the active side of the enzyme, basically. Ah. So that's the area where the replication would happen. Yeah. And by like, the way, could I could I imagine like Janus particles coming together eventually and creating something like that that could then catalyze two things to stick together? Um, like they eventually could figure out how to glue two things together. I don't know how you would get Janus particles to do all of this because this is RNA. And okay. RNAs, so now we've but we've jumped we've missed a step then, right? How RNAs, we... yeah, so it's there is kind of a leap there. Like, you know, we we talked a little bit about like, you know, the RNA molecules and how are we able to get those yet without, you know, um any too much help and you know, we we can get the nucleotides. We're still like trying to get the whole thing um this is a whole 80 residues all chained together in a particular you know sequence so there is a lot to get there's a lot to bootstrap up to so, um and you know this is these kind of things are isolated from living organisms usually. this is where we need to pour billions of dollars of research <laughs> i mean yeah, right maybe. this is the gap to figure out yeah i mean and like the rna is really really crazy you know that we used it for the um uh, the most recent vaccine for like COVID, you know, the, M the, the Moderna M mRNA, mRNA, mRNA yeah. vaccines. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, there's lots of interesting possibilities and things we can do with RNAs. This is how it works. Okay. So you have the, the molecule, uh, the whole chain, it has to dissociate from itself to replicate itself. And you see a process here where it breaks off into like an A and B chain, and then the A and B chain can recombine. It synthesizes its complement. And then you see like the opposite complement that can go off oh. and separate to do its own replication and thereby create the original. So, so it separates, to, connects, separates again. Yeah. But it connects with another one of the, the original. So it's the, so there's two that are broken off, but it connects with another one. Or is it the same one in the beginning that reconnects itself? So, um, you start, that, it's a mirror. Is that right? Yeah, it's a so complement. You have to like for, it's a left hand, right hand, then back to right hand. Is basically, that? yes. So you, you have to use, you know, your left hand to make the right hand. And then once you've got the right hand, you can now make another left hand. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Um, but in this case, the, the A and B pieces actually separate, um, to, I mean, I think that's actually the active site. You know, if they aren't, uh, if they don't have the complemented piece, then it doesn't hold, it doesn't form the ribozyme, it looks like. So to wrap my pea brain around this, Janus particles. <laughs> no, you are very th smart. Those are to, to show off like how simple things can create complicated things. That That's like the main thing for Janus particles, correct? Yeah. It doesn't necessarily hold weight with amino acids creating DNA. No, yeah, it's just like a, okay. another way of like, you know, how... To simple show it's rules. possible. Yeah, how simple rule from simple rules can emerge. You can emerge. You can get cool patterns. Okay, because because a Janus particle yeah, is something created in a lab. That's not ever going to be found out in nature. 
but it demonstrates how nature might have done something. Is that right? Yeah, basically. Gen- Genesis particles are lab creations. Yes. And, and okay. that, uh, but like I said before, if, if you have lots of entities that are all following the same rules, they may work together to create something and something much bigger will emerge. Yeah. So. Okay. Yeah. That helped me w- understand this yeah, way so, more so honestly. Yeah. I guess like, uh, it seems interesting that Janus particles are used because they're actually manufactured to be more simple than life. Life would probably have had something with a bit more variation and more tweaking, which actually would be more likely to build into something complicated. That would be, this is like the simplest gate possible and all this can still happen. Like yeah. You might even have something that's a little more complicated and then you could have even, you know, nature would be more creative even. This is like as dumb as you can get and it still works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Janus particles are the way to just illustrate the rule of Yeah, it's simple yeah, to like complicated. A, it's like the toy, the canonical or the toy example, like the, just to prove it out. Now, okay. um, if we want to talk about like, you know, bootstrapping up to that, you know, complex ribozyme. For sure um, I do. Let's, let's look at the Minimo CT. You think we're going to let you out of here without the bootstrapping <laughs> up to the more <laughs> complex? Let's talk about that Minimo No way. Uh, this was written by a professor I used to work for, Dr. Schiller, who you met before. Yeah. Um, mini motifs are short peptide sequences as part of proteins that are really important for protein-protein interactions. Mm-hmm. So they're basically just going to be uh, 2 to 15 amino acids in length. And, and that's it. And they're really important for, like, uh, you know, uh, signaling about proteins. You can tag a protein for destruction. Um, the You can... Uh, have like trafficking signals attached to a protein that tells Mm -hmm. you know a cell where to take the protein Um, and then also uh, you have some catalytic abilities like uh, if you phosphorylate a protein you can uh, that's a mini motif so the phosphorylated residue is a point that's gonna that you attach a charged phosphate to and that charged phosphate will cause the protein to change shape and you can get work done out of that protein by phosphorylating it and then dephosphorylating it and it'll work you can you know treat it like a pump in fact your body has cells as your body some of your body's all your body cells have pumps that work essentially just like that you phosphorylate it you dephosphorylate it pump runs and it moves things so it connects disconnects and then reconnects yeah and because that charged group causes it it to change shape it's actually making sense like (laughs) but anyway what we're looking at here right here are these uh actually imagining these mini motifs as being as mediating these chemical reactions all on their own, not as like large super proteins. So what he's kind of conceived of is that you could have like little triplets of amino acids and you only need like three, like really a a chain of amino acids, just three long can fold into something that can actually touch itself like end to end. It's not, they're, they're very Uh rotatable and you know, if you could get like a couple of them to work together, um, maybe opposite of each other, or in the case of one of these, there's a high affinity motif that's used to bind to something. It just kind of folds in on a target. This would be an easy, this would be a theoretical way to get like, to get started up to that point. So I would tend to think that the mini motifs probably come first before the RNAs. Um, and the RNAs come later because they're so much more complicated of molecules because mm-hmm. these mini motifs, you know, it's just the amino acids. They're each of these amino acids. They're actually smaller than the nucleotides, mm. the nucleobases themselves. The, the nucleobase be. itself still has to have a, a a phosphate group and a sugar group attached to it. So, I mean, RNAs and DNAs are much bigger molecules. Um, and and it, these are cool little intermediates that could you know plausibly help us 
get up to more complicated. So what, ev what experiments or what evidence, or do, do you see anything like a mini motif in the wild? Has anything been done in a lab that gives you some understanding of how so it could Dr. Schiller works extensively with using mini motifs in um, biomedical research. I would have to let him talk to you about that. Um, and as far as, you know, prospects for, you know, using this to, you know, yeah. help enhance the Miller Urey But as of this point, there's not like a Schiller experiment that's like, it, no. this could be the, this gives us the probability, like gives us something to. I haven't seen it yet. Okay. Yet. All right. This is so cool. So it's our best. Wow. So this is where, yeah. So see, Nick, you got to devote your life to this. <laughs> yeah, like you imagine, should. imagine you figure out how these things bootstrap life. You go down in the history books. It's so cool. Maybe they, maybe they're the key. Is there a competing theory? Anything else besides these mini motifs that you think might um, be in between the, the RNA and the amino acids? So the RNA world is the, is the most famous theory. Um, you know, it's, most widely held because uh, RNA is, you know, self-catalytic and it is also a great... Uh, wait, but RNA... Wait, the RN, explain the RNA world hypothesis because it sounds like we don't have RNA yet. We only have amino acids. So the RNA world hypothesis is important. Is, but it's too high level. It's it, it's kind of... It seems like it's it might be a little complicated because, yeah, the, or, the amino acids appear to generate very easily, but we, we still don't have great experiments that show... Uh, these, you know, chains of nucleotides emerging naturally. Um, so, I mean, that is a fair criticism of the, the theory, I think. But it's, it's still widely held because if you look at, like, the, the three different information, the three molecules of life that are really important, you have your DNA, you have your RNA, and you have your proteins. You know, DNA is, is great for uh, storing information, but it doesn't, it can't catalyze anything. It yeah. doesn't, it, it it's very poor at catalyzing any other interactions. Its asset is robustness. Yes. There you go. Um, proteins, on the other hand, uh, they tend to fold into these elaborate shapes. And then, you know, they're, they're very they're highly catalytic. They're very active. They, they cut each other up and they do all sorts of fun things. Um, it's, it's a poor energy storage molecule because it, well, if nothing else, it, it folds a lot. And, you know, the... That, that particular, you know, helical structure of DNA helps make it a very great energy or sorry, information storage molecule because you can unwind it and it's, you know, the whole thing's a very regular shape, whereas uh, proteins don't have a very regular shape. Yeah, nothing stiff there to keep them together. So real quick, going back to the mini motifs. So those are all just amino acids and then they just start kind of coming together. And so then more and more and more and they just kind of bundle up all together and that's what creates a protein. Um, so... You, yeah, so a protein is going to be a, a chain of amino acids. Okay. Um, the mini motifs are, you know, the shortest, you know, protein chains you could, you could conceivably have. Um, but, uh, yeah, to make a bigger protein, you just need more mini, more, well, yeah, actually more mini motifs are just more uh, residues. And so oh. what makes them, like, want to come together? It's just how they are. They're just attracted to each other. They just know that they fit, so they go that way. Okay, so... Um, Amino acids, yeah, so amino acids interact with each other largely through charge. So the hydrophobic residues, they avoid water. Um, for the large protein structures, that tends to be a big part of how the protein gets its structure. The hydrophobic residues will orient inwards. Mm -hmm. And then the hydrophilic residues um, that like water, that have the charged sides, those will orient outwards. Now, as far as how proteins interact with each other, like I, I kind of mentioned the mini motifs, um, the mini motifs are often targets of protein 
uh, interactions. So like, you know, if you phosphorylate a mini motif, um, other, as far as other things proteins do, they're all different. Yeah, that was such a good question you asked, because I never really thought about how do they bundle up different things. Um, we have we have to settle the issue of like how to get uh, amino acid chains. And then there's also the things amino acids do. Um, the amino acid chains are uh, they're formed from like the there's the amine group and the acidic uh, carboxylic acid, and they just bind together and leave a, a third, you know, so-called R group out that is allowed to interact with other things. Um, that R group is going to be the, the charged group or the not charged group. And um, you, you're looking at some of these uh, amino acids. They have like, you know, uh, uh, you know, a couple, like, like a negative charge. So if it has a negative charge, it means that there's a couple of electrons there that are uh, that are active and have something to do or that attract other they're looking acids. for something to do and they're gonna they're gonna attack another molecule or something like that and um i mean that's an actual term they use in uh organic chemistry uh, attack <laughs> that's so cool uh it all makes sense if we have these protocells which i'm going to just define as like not quite cells yet but they might have the elements of a cell and they could come together, how um, might they be replicating? So I, I kind of, I don't know where I heard this idea. I'm sure it wasn't mine, uh, but I kind of like the idea that like, if you're gonna use the hydrothermal vent theory, um, you could have these organic molecules that would, I mean, if they, if you, if you could get the, like the RNA protein or the RNAs, you know, that, that backbone or whatever, or sorry, the, uh, God, that instruction set, and then you also have like some proteins with it. You could get particles that would, you know, maybe like almost like a viral particle that would, uh, that could be stable enough to transport to another hydrothermal vent. And that would be the first step of something lifelike that I would consider. Cause like you, if you had like these a mostly inert, you know, you know, cluster of molecules that, you know, as it travels between like, you know, hydrothermal vents, it does nothing. But once it gets to a hydrothermal vent, it's now hot enough. It's now has that environment to interact. It'll start, you know, replicating itself. It'll oh start God. to interact. It's you know, a mixture of resources. Be, that would be the, the first pseudo cellular thing I could think yeah. of. You know, what's crazy about that is that when you described it, it sounds like the way I've heard people describe a virus you know, just kind of like floats around. It can, it kind of can hold its own container and keep some information, but when it lands in a certain spot, it can do a thing. So now you're talking about something that maybe that's jumping from like hydrothermal vents or maybe jumping from puddle to puddle, but I don't know. It, it has that like life definitely seems to like that model because viruses are much more abundant than, than cell, yeah. than like, than, than cells, right? Or, yeah. Isn't, yeah. there, isn't there like isn't there like an incredible amount of viruses just sitting around the planet? Uh, I want to say they're like they outnumber us ten to one at least. Yeah, it's oh, like just dang. in cellularity. There's, yeah, you know, there, yeah. There's more viruses that, than there are like cells. How many more viruses are there than cells or something? But anyways, and that that's because they're fairly simple in the fact, and well, then they just, can just they're just keys sitting there waiting for a lock. Whoa, look at that. Oh, 10 to the 8 viruses to match every <laughs> cell in our body. Wow. You're like 10 to 1, like 10 to the 8th to 1. Wow. So, I mean, that's what's crazy. So, like, you I already think, like, our body oh has a God. trillion cells or whatever. But then, whatever that is, for, for a trillion cells in our body, there must be a quazillion 
viruses floating around in this same environment for for the fact that we have four human beings in here if we each have a trillion cells or something how many cells are in the human there's body a trillion trillion viruses yeah so there's a trillion trillion viruses in this room right now is it because cells are living and viruses are not so. well that it's 37 trillion cells oh. that's not that much that's per cell though that's yeah so now that's how many viruses there are for each cell in our body yeah and we have and a, there's now that times 37 million billion i mean 3.7 trillion. trillion oh yeah whatever <laughs> i don't know how to do a trillion it's a big number <laughs> you put a dot instead of a comma one two three four five six seven eight nine that's, that's billion right trillion yep. yeah i think so well close enough so three in the power of 20. okay <laughs> my brain can't even compute I know, but how it's much just, that it's just insane it's massive, yeah it's like massive. and, and where are they on the carpet in the ceiling in the everywhere, air man everywhere uh, yeah. everywhere and they're just waiting to get into one of my cells and infect me do you think a virus is alive i actually think of viruses as living organisms um so not that's as, a living not as viral particles because they're not doing anything but if you look at it like a, a host cell that's been infected with a virus in what respect is that host cell not now belong to the virus in what respect is it not a new organism because like have you ever heard of the hela cells no you haven't heard of henrietta Lacks? okay so oh boy um, oh boy Henrietta. Is this basic no. stuff I should know? No, that, I mean, that was somehow Google caught you there. Like how to... Google just <laughs> loves Matt, I guess. So <laughs> there was this lady from back in the, uh, I think, 1950s, 40s, 50s. She was attending. She was... Yep, 1950s. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So she was at, she was a patient at Johns Hopkins uh, with, I think it was ovarian cancer. Uh -huh. And um, what they did... No, it wasn't ovarian cancer. It was uterine cancer and um basically the the, the researcher biopsied her and cervical like cancer to prove that she had cancer and then he did something kind of nefarious he took the cells without her permission and oh. tried growing them inside a test tube and it worked Whoa. And then he shared those cells with every scientist on earth he started producing them like in the lab and like you know growing them in the lab and then yeah. you know using and them experimentally giving them okay because there's never been like Nobody had ever been able to grow like, human cells in a lab before, but these cancer cells, you, you can grow in a lab because cancer yeah. cells are just so resistant. Yeah. Dying. They're, they're just, yeah. I mean, they're broken cells. Like most of your body cells just to avoid being cancer, like they have a default setting to, to die. If something goes wrong, apoptosis, anything goes wrong, they kill themselves and that's their job. Oh, is apoptosis the default setting? Yes. I, I assumed it was like a signal, but you're no, saying like if things setting. aren't right, we just die. If you cut a piece oh, of tissue out of you, I mean, it arguably it dies not because, I mean, because all the cells are programmed to, they're programmed to die. So, I mean, it's replicating correctly. Yeah. Having, <laughs> having a default state of, of self-suicide is, is a great way to uh, avoid getting cancer. Okay. So this guy found some cells that were breaking the rules and sent them everywhere. Uh-huh. And, um, we call them HeLa cells. They're the most famous cells, cell line on earth, I guess. Uh, it's, it's widely used in biomedicine all across the world today. And cancer research. There's, there's no going backwards <laughs> from this, but, uh, yeah, that taken without a permission, really sad. Yeah. Also a groundbreaking development. That's why. Sure. So, we, uh, so what do you think about, like, do you have an opinion on gene drives and if we should like release them out into the wild? Uh, gene what? Drives like where you take like a mosquito and you modify with CRISPR its DNA mm, so yeah, that um, that's fun. it it can't 
have malaria, then you put it out into the wild and it mates and that passes into all of the next generation and all of a sudden we cure malaria. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not terribly worried about Gosh, we should do a whole other episode to, on CRISPR though. Yeah. I know quite a bit of it. I've been like reading a lot about Jennifer Doudna's work. You'll have to find somebody who knows about CRISPR, not me. You're not the CRISPR guy? No. You're my biology guy, man. Close not the CRISPR guy. Okay, anyways. But anyways, what's your thoughts on gene drives? Um, you know, I think it's a great and interesting uh, approach. Uh, the These mosquitoes exist, by the way. They're in a lab right now. Hopefully they don't escape unless you want Ooh. the world to not have malaria, which I do. So I think that... I hope, think, yeah. There's... I hope someone kicks the wall down and it, releases those things, but... The, the thing is, with that, it just gives out a lot of like ramifications in the end of what could happen if it's used nefariously actually yeah i don't want i don't want to like i don't want someone to release it without supervision i want it very very carefully studied and well because carefully let out but i think the risks just outweigh the rewards and like life would do it i mean like without us if it just accidentally life does all sorts of weird stuff and it just goes goes all over the planet i think we should release these uh these crispr cas9 super I actually kind of, I thought of this many years ago because I, I was reading a book uh, about genetic drive. And I was like, you know, how cool would it be if somebody put this in a mosquito or some shit and then leased it out into the wild and get rid of a bunch of mosquitoes because yeah. all they do is cause malaria. I, I would, I tend to be for it. <laughs> yeah. So, the, yeah, yeah. so I guess like the, the quick summary is the gene drive makes it so that it, it sort of purposely makes it into both the next generations and you can't get rid of it it'll just it'll propagate into the whole population and the way mosquitoes breed you might get like 99 percent of mosquitoes covered in a reasonable amount of time and there's also a mouse i think or a rat that has it there's another gene drive with a rat that can't be haplotype you do something i don't know what is that so basically what happens is when you have one of these haplotypes it's it's a huge like segment of your chromosome and it prevents like you won't be able to, it won't line up with a, with a complementary chromosome that doesn't have that huge haplotype, right? Mm. So, I mean, that's a big part of like, you know, the so-called crossing over and, you know, in a, uh, when you mate, um, you know, your, all your chromosomes line up and then they, they exchange segments. This helps increase genetic variation within a population. Uh, it helps make sure that you, you don't look terribly, you're not like terribly much like either one of your parents exactly. You know, mm-hmm. so you you'd be a really healthy oh, mix cool. of the two. Yeah. yeah, I didn't really know this. Yeah, we and have, um, humans don't have that many haplogroups, do they? Mm, well, I mean, so haplotype could is any large inherited subset, but um, as far as these, you know, diseased haplotypes, not that I know of. Um, but anyway, in in the T haplotype for in Moose Muscus or in the house mouse. Um, the way it works is if you have only one copy of it, gametes that have that one copy will survive. Gametes that don't have that copy will die before you can mate. So you'll only produce cell like sex cells that have that copy. And then, mm. um, I mean, that, that's basically the way it, it forces mm. itself its inheritance. Um, oh, and that's then, interesting. I didn't quite know that. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the thinking is with this, I think this mouse exists too from what I was reading, but the mouse actually is bit by a tick and the tick uptakes the um, the gene, the blood or something. And then it makes Lyme disease eventually work its way out of a, out of an environment. So there is like an island they want to release these mice on or these mm. rats. And the goal is to eliminate Lyme disease from the island. Oh, wow. But then people That's are worried crazy. that you've opened up a can of worms. 
way, the genetic insert. But yeah. I mean, to get rid of Lyme disease and uh, you know, and malaria just seem seem worth like kind of worth the risk, generally speaking, if we do it right and very carefully. Mm-hmm. So the problem with uh, the, that genetic drive approach mm-hmm. is that it uh, you wouldn't do it to a species that you're not willing to, to get rid of. Right. So in the case of the the mosquitoes, mosquitoes. it sounds great because you're just going to lose a bunch of mosquitoes. Yeah. You know what what happens if we wiped out the whole species? I and mean, that was kind of the goal. Um, they don't really of, serve anything. a lot of stuff. Yeah, they're not, they're not important them. to the bats, other bugs. Oh, but the you know the butterfly effect. I mean, and things eat them. I mean, that's that's a problem. Right. There's a whole video online of what would happen if we didn't have any mosquitoes. Really? Yeah, and it explains all the ramifications and all the issues that it would cause. Have you heard people call our just since humans became like the anthropene since we became like kind of impacting the sixth great extinction? Yeah. Because so many species have already died since humans got kind of a good amount of technology that it's on par with like some of the big extinctions of the past oh but how yeah. worrisome is that like this one's not because of an environmental change i don't know it's just weird we're just killing so many species but we're just speeding really up that natural just, like, cycle but I'll, also i want all the things that technology brings me so i'm guilty of it but <laughs> just you know we maybe we could think about it a little more as a society and put rules in place um well that's it thank you so much for sharing all of these insights thanks for having me this is awesome